Good morning, church. It is marvelous to be with you this great Lord's Day, and thank you again, Nate and Daniel, for just blessing us with uh, your experience of giving yourself to the Lord in baptism. I always say on, on Sundays where we have a baptism, that's the best sermon that's preached today, by far, by your life and your body to say Jesus is worth giving everything we have to him. He is worth it. He is worth it. And you're part of us. We're so grateful for that. Thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, we've been going through uh, this little book in the Old Testament called the book of Ecclesiastes and asking the question, what does it look like to pursue the joy of God, the enduring joy of God in a world like ours that has wonderful moments, also has difficult, confusing moments as well. And we've explored all sorts of things in that book. Last week, we finished up kind of uh, the teacher wrestling with the mystery of time. We're looking at this book. If you're just joining us, it's Holy Spirit inspired this, this man who calls himself the teacher, journaling reflections of life in the world, a powerful, influential, wise man looking back on life and saying, what is it that is worth pursuing uh, with all of our life and being? And so we're going to continue that. And last week we had a lot of fun with, a, I think, one of the high points in the book, celebrating the uh, eating and, and practicing joy together. This week, it's a little more fitting for the weeks leading up to to uh, the celebration of a resurrection. So this is a little more fitting for that season in the weeks we, we lead up to Easter. So if you have your Bibles or devices, we're going to look at uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, the first 12 verses. If you would please stand out of respect for God. Simple practice we do just says thank you, um, God, for revealing yourself and your ways to us. And you'll see the words on the screen that we say uh, when we're finished. So word of Lord, Ecclesiastes 4, verse 1. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This too is mist, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and a chasing after the wind. And again, I saw something mist under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This, too, is missed, a miserable business. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And a cord of three strands is not easily broken. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Pray with me. Father God, I pray as the psalmist did so long ago. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I think about this text today and kind of what the teacher is reflecting on, it reminds me of wisdom the guy named Richard Foster wrote in a book that's now become a, a new classic, so to speak, 
book called Celebration of Discipline, he talks about spiritual practices that help us grow with God. And in one section, he talks about a particular way of praying. I think it's fitting, and it's almost what I picture the teacher doing here. He said, I encourage you sometimes to pray with the news in one hand and the Bible in the other. (laughs) I think it's helpful, right? Whether it's a newspaper that you read or on your device, think sometimes about just kind of looking through the headlines of the news and then God's revelation in scripture and we balance these. What, what is he talking about? He's saying sometimes it's helpful for us to have our eyes so fixed on what is going on in the world around us. And we're bringing ourselves into how does, how does God feel about that? It's almost like aligning our hearts with the heart of God. What, if God were reading our newspapers, so to speak, he's looking at our world as he does. What is God grieving over? And we bring our hearts to that place. Are the things when we look at the headlines of the news that would make God smile and rejoice. He gets to some heavy things here. I want to start with my kind of favorite, more lighthearted headline that I've seen this past week. Maybe some of you started, saw this. It doesn't start great, uh, but it's, it's a fire that took place in Wyoming, a big fire. You saw the picture of that. Uh, I don't know if you saw this. Again, nobody dies. No one's hurt. Property is damaged, obviously, but uh, nobody dies or hurts. But it's one of those places where, have you ever heard of situational irony before? All right, I'm going to share the headline with you in a second. I want you to think about what is the place, the business that burns down. Here's the headline. Yes. <laughs> Fire extinguisher business is destroyed in the blaze. It was so funny to see some of the comments on there. They were like, I don't know. Is there something handy that might put out a fire around here somewhere? Or I love one was kind of biblical. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. <laughs> that was good. There was one I put down here that was, it was almost like an epic movie. You have become the very thing you swore to destroy. <laughs> it's great. All right, this one's comical, but you and I both know all you have to do is just kind of scroll through the news feed. Just look even at the ticker in the bottom of the, of the news channels or whatever. And there's all sorts of things in this world that we don't laugh we grieve, right? Or, or we're confused or we struggle, we wrestle with. And what, what does it look like to say, I, I want to bring these things that happen in the world side by side with God's perspective on it. And I think that's what the teacher's doing here. In the teacher's pursuit of joy in a real world, not some Pollyanna, not some utopian vision, but the real world that we see, is there a way to bring God into the conversation? And it does a couple things for us. It helps us kind of just see, if you're like me, sometimes I can become numb to the kind of things that happen around. But also, it's an invitation for God to say, how do we respond to the kind of things that we see happening day in and day out? So we really walk through this. And I think as the teacher is journaling through his perspective on life, you'll see again and again, I saw this, I saw this, I saw this. He's observing, and then the Holy Spirit inspires reflections on this. I want to focus on what what seems to be three problems of life that he recognizes, especially that come out of the kind of frenzied pursuit of gain we've talked about before, like this attempt to have something left over, something we can hold on to, and that attempt under the sun in this world alone leads to some problems and some perspectives. The first thing I want you to see, what does the teacher notice? Right off the bat, he says, I notice the tears. I noticed the tears, not just any tears, but I noticed the tears of the oppressed. I think it's powerful that this teacher, who 
let us remind ourselves, is a person of wealth and power and influence and significance. Takes the time to look at the tears and the struggle and the pain of those who don't have power, probably don't have wealth, don't have influence and significance in this world. By the way, I think this practice, really this whole text, is very helpful for us as we lead up to the celebration of Jesus' resurrection. If we, like the teacher here, can step into the eyes of God and let ourselves see the tears in the world, let ourselves see the places in the world that most need God's resurrection. When you look around the world, you look around your life, the people that you care about, where do you see the tears of the powerless and the people who are struggling? Let me just give you a few statistics that come out. I need to remind myself of this because I'm so insulated and isolated in the blessing that we find ourselves in here. Did you know right now today, 160 million children are compelled into some form of child labor? Just take that in. 160 million children from the ages of five up into their teenage years are forced into child labor. And half of those, 79 million of them are not just forced into oppressive child labor, but they're in highly hazardous work conditions when they do. Or I think about this, did you know over 50 million people in the world are victims of human trafficking? You know that? People are just like stealing human beings. The vast majority of that falls into two categories. One is into, again, forced labor situations, essentially debt slavery. And the other, as you probably know, is forced prostitution, mostly of children. And the teacher is willing to say, I'm just looking at these places in the world and I'm grieving because I see the tears of those who are powerless and oppressed. And you don't have to go all the way around the world to do this. So I was preparing for this week. I'm reminded of my friend Terry, who spends his life in a nonprofit for years. He does with other people what he calls their core story. And he'll sit down and do a map of like two generations past and see the joys and the grace of God in our lives. But he also sees the struggle and the patterns of pain. And one of the things he points out every time, and we write down on one side of the paper, he did this with me, I'll share a piece of this later, but, but he talks about the three core lies of our lives. What are the lies that we tell ourselves, usually early on in childhood years, to protect ourselves, and then they become the lies that trip us up? What are the lies that we repeat in our mind? And what he told me, he said, Dean, look, I've done thousands of these people's core stories. And what I'm telling you is not just physical oppression out there, person after person after person. Everybody has a grace part of their story, but everybody has a pain and struggle part of their story too. Everybody is plagued with some lie that oppresses us that we repeat in our minds again and again. And the teacher here has enough spiritual maturity to say, God, I'm going to stop for a moment, even in the midst of all of my achievement and my blessing, to see the tears of the oppressed in this moment. And he goes on in verses 2 and 3 to give us one perspective. This is really important to say, especially for this and places like this. In Ecclesiastes, it's just a perspective in a moment in time. Sometimes the Bible gives us these great universal truths, the resurrection of Jesus. Sometimes it invites us to see a perspective in a moment, and that's what he says here. Because what does he say in verses 2 and 3? In a moment like this, he said, it's better if I weren't even alive. In fact, he said, it's, it's better the dead than the living, but he said, it's even better for someone who hasn't even been born. So they don't have to see the pain and the oppression that I see. Now, is that a universal truth of all time? No. 
What he's talking about, I love the way one scholar puts it. This is a moment where what he is writing and journaling is every bit as much a mood as it is a thought. Does that make sense? He's saying, in this moment, it feels better if I weren't even here. Let's be honest. Have you ever felt that before in your life? And sometimes what the Bible does is invites us to see something kind of like the way we read the book of Psalms and see the laments sometimes that people are expressing their grief to God. It's a perspective. It's a mood he's in in the moment. By the way, even in the same book, he makes it very clear he's not always in that mood. Chapter 9, verse 4 says this, anyone who is still living has hope. It feels a little different than here, right? Why? And then he uses this little turn of phrase. Why? It's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. <laughs> it's better to be alive in the most humble of circumstances than to be a rich, powerful king or president that's no longer alive because at least you still have hope. He's in a different mood there. Does that make sense? But when I come to this, it helps me to say, okay, the Bible gives us permission to feel the weight of the world sometimes. In fact, this is, again, a great season. Historically, followers of Jesus have used the weeks leading up to Easter and the resurrection celebration to say, let us feel the pain of the world. Let us cry out, God, these are the things that we see in the world that most need resurrection. It's okay to sit in that place for a moment. And yes, the Bible gives us a deeper move with this. So I've said time and time again, what I love about the book of Ecclesiastes, it asks questions that it doesn't answer in the book. It'll give us some hints. But the greatest answers come as we keep reading scripture in the gospel of Jesus. So picture this. I, again, it's a familiar thing if you've heard this before. One of Jesus' most famous sermons speaks more deeply to this than just, oh, it's better to not be here. What does Jesus say? Opening words of one of his most famous sermons, Matthew 5, verse 6 says this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for, and if you've read or heard this before, you know the next word as what? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's one way to translate it. It's a good way to translate it. But you know it's equally good. Equal translation of this word fits better with what we're feeling here. This is also what Jesus says. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. And I want you to picture Jesus giving the sermon on that mountain that day to people who in the moment of the sermon were being oppressed by a foreign, foreign power, uh, the Roman government. And they were under the thumb of it. There were a lot of tears on those faces. And Jesus looked out and gave them hope. He said, blessed are you if you are hungering and thirsting for the justice of God to come in the world. Are you ready for the promise of Jesus? For they will be filled. If you allow yourself on a, on a Sunday like this or in the weeks leading up to resurrection to feel the pain of an oppressive world at times and cry out to the Lord, one of the things Jesus himself promises is that justice will actually come. And we get to see the fullness of it when Jesus returns, but we get to see hints of it often through the people of God as those days come to us. I'll tell you the story of one we'll call Foley. That's the way IGM describes it. I'll talk about them more in a moment. Foley is a little boy growing up in West Africa, in Ghana. And his story starts the way children's stories usually do. He has a good, loving family at home. He's actually raised by his grandparents. But then his grandparents fall ill in one season of his life. And so he goes to live with some relatives not far away. And he does not realize, as they tell the story, when he moved into that house, in the moment he stepped into the house, he stepped into slavery. 
because it was common in that region, in that place, where they didn't have a lot of money to eat, and they didn't have a lot of money for medical expenses and those kind of things, that children would be taken into essentially indentured servitude is what they would call it, but it's slavery. And Foley did not know. He got up, he was, he was gotten up at two o'clock in the morning one day. He was taken out by a boatmaster onto this lake. And he, along with thousands of other boys every day, would be taken out there because the way they made their living, their grasping for the wind, is they fished. And what they needed was, in their minds, little boys they would send under the water into the dark, murky, and muddy waters of the night and untangle the nets. You picture this first night. Foley doesn't know why he's going out there. By the way, Foley cannot swim. He's forced to learn that pretty quickly. He's forced to work at a young age doing this for somebody else's gain. And the thing is, they'd make a little bit of money to pay back the debts, but they do it in such a way, they structure the debt in such a way, all they can do, you know the equivalent of this, is basically pay the minimum on the balance, and they keep them in slavery for their whole childhood. And Foley gets to do this along with a thousand other boys, guess how long? 18 hours a day. Decades ago, there was a man, a follower of Jesus named Gary Haugen, who was working at the heights of what you can work in as a, as a lawyer, at least in his realm the way he wanted to do it. He's working for the Justice Department. His direct report was the President of the United States. He went to Rwanda, I believe it was. He was going around after the genocide some years ago, and he saw all of the absolute horror of the oppression of people with power. And he tells the story of how he got back and he was, dri- he was riding in D.C. on, a, on a, a metro subway that I have ridden a thousand times as a kid. The metro that took you into Washington, D.C. And he was looking around at people just sitting like we are today, just doing everyday life. And, and inside he said, he, I wanted to scream, don't you know what's going on in the world? How can we sit here and do nothing? So he left working for the President of the United States to start International Justice Mission, where followers of Jesus use the law to set people free from oppression around the world. He's the one, and their website tells the story of Foley and how one day workers from IJM came in, worked through the legal system, and when Foley came back from the boat that day, he was set free, and the people were arrested, and that thing was broken up. A thousand boys were set free. I love their picture on the website. Again, can't use the real guy, but this is the picture. He said, this is what rescue looks like. A boy who was diving underwater for 18 hours a day gets to go and play soccer and then go home and do some things in his family. Here's what's powerful to me. That story happens in a world with tears of the oppressed because of Jesus Christ's promise and because followers of Jesus believe so much that those who hunger and thirst for justice will be filled. We're going to start trying to step into that reality right now. That's a beautiful picture, is it not? It takes the gospel of Jesus to respond to that great angst that we see by the teacher in Ecclesiastes, but if we don't live there and see the tears of the oppressed for a little bit, we will not be propelled to act enough. And I'm grateful for that. What's the next thing that that you see the teacher observe? I saw this, I saw this, I saw this. The next thing he sees, I call him calling out a scarcity mindset in the world. He calls out a scarcity mindset. Specifically, His language is a little bit different. What does he say in verse 4? I saw, it's a hyperbole by the way, but I I saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. And this is hebel, this is mist. One person's envy, one person's comparison. One person, I need to get mine because somebody else is trying to get theirs. 
Similar language is a little more stark in the book of Proverbs 14, verse 30. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. We live in a world that has a scarcity mindset. Here's the way I think about it. So often in our culture, in our world, our minds and our hearts and our lives are dominated by two words. Two words again and again. Not enough. Not enough. Talk more about this next week in a different way. But here's the way we'll think about it. Sometimes we're looking at the world out there. There's not enough to satisfy me, to take care of me, and to take care of everybody else. By the way, the teacher has already said, there won't be enough. It's grasping the wind, but we still try. If you're like me, by the way, the not enough is not just looking out in the world out there. Often I look at the world in here and I think, I'm not enough. I'm not enough. I'm not enough. Here's the thing. There's something wired into the fallen, not God's intent, but the fallen human nature that suspects somehow Deep inside, that if somebody else profits, that means I lose something. Have you ever noticed that? When someone else wins, we feel like there has to be a loss somewhere else in the world, me or somebody else. Uh, One of the most stark examples, I saw this one time. We went home for Christmas and we were with Melanie's family. And her brother Ronald got us lottery tickets to scratch off as a little stocking stuffer. Only they were the trick ones. Have you ever seen these? They're little practical joke ones. So you scratch them off and it says, you won $10,000. You start freaking out. Then you flip it over and it says, must be redeemed at your mama's house (laughs) or something like that. It's like, and within five seconds of scratching and all this stuff, it's clearly a joke. (laughs) Well, before he had given it to us, when we came up there, he had already given one to Melanie's mom, his mother. And she was scratching it off at work. And I want you to picture this. She's at work. There's a lady next to her that she's known for a long time, works with her every day. She scratched it off, saw she won $10,000. The lady next to her got mad. Do you feel this? It was like, hold on, mom won $10,000, therefore I didn't and I've lost something. And as crazy as that is, that's what happens in our world. We feel like that someone else's gain is our loss. That's called a scarcity mindset. By the way, I have to throw this in. Can I brag about my wife for a second? When we scratched it off in Ronald's house, she saw it, won $10,000. She handed it to her brother and said, you bought this, this is yours. I didn't do that, but my wife did that. (laughs) Different, different mindset. We live in a world with a scarcity mindset. He gives us a couple pieces of practical wisdom, and then I will, we'll have a deeper response from the bigger picture of Scripture. In verses 5 and 6 here, he, he gives us two sides of a balanced life. If working crazy and for gain is, is emptiness, so we just should sit back and do nothing? No, this is what he says in verse 5. Laziness and sloth leads to literally consuming oneself, is what he says. A little folding of the hands is the image he uses. Throughout the book of Proverbs too, folding of the hands is an image of being lazy, slothful. So in Proverbs it says, a little folding of the hands, a little closing of the eyes, and poverty will come upon you like a bandit. Doesn't mean don't rest or take a nap. But it means, no, you do good hard work. In fact, he celebrated last time. What's the balance of that? In verse 6, he said, but frenzied work, out of control, toilsome work, that is missed. Don't go that way either. Love the way the message translates this. The first verse is sloth is slow suicide, but on the other side, worried, frenzied work is more spitting into the wind. 
working crazy in a frenzied way. So that's a helpful, practical balance. But what does the larger picture of Scripture say to this world that says there's not enough, there's not enough, there's not enough, the scarcity of mindset? Listen, what Scripture tells us from beginning to end, and especially through the heart and the life of Jesus, is that our God is a God of abundance. And we don't have to worry. Here's the thing. God can give out of God's abundance, and there is no loss in God. He's not emptier because he's given in one place. And what's true is the people of God can give out of the blessing of God, and you are not lessened when someone else is blessed. That is an abundance mindset, and I'm telling you, it will change your life. Here's some verses that, again, speak to this. It's great, uh, uh, Monty read kind of the outcome of this in our giving, but what builds up to it, he starts with Jesus and then ours. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, this is what it says first about Jesus. You know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Why? So that you through his poverty might become rich. And then skipping down to verse Chapter 9, verse 11, here's where we are today because of Jesus. You will be enriched in every way. He's not just talking about money. You will be enriched in every way. This is not a health wealth gospel. You will be enriched so that you can be generous on every occasion. And your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Do we believe that we worship a God of abundance so that as we share, we are not diminished? As someone else is blessed, we are not lessened. Because God isn't emptied out in any way. Literally saw this happen this week. A, a simple moment of life, a simple follower of Jesus showed me what it looks like to have an abundance mindset of things. We were driving to Lubbock on Wednesday because for Valentine's Day and something we had planned was taking my wife to a live Wheel of Fortune event. We were hoping they pulled some people out of the audience. We didn't get on there. We didn't make it. But we had fun. Now, we're driving on Wednesday. we got to get to Lubbock. In fact, I was going to try to speak for our daughter's campus ministry there, and I'm on the way. Now, rewind a couple weeks. Some of you may know this, but a couple weeks ago, I wanted to surprise, and Luke and I helped try to surprise Melanie with a new used car. I don't buy new cars. We bought a new used car, looked around, got something, drove it over from Houston, surprised her when she got here. Now, we bought used cars our whole life, never been burned by that, usually have great experiences. So we're driving on the maiden voyage of her new used Toyota Sienna, and we got to Heiko, Texas. We're driving down this little hill, all of a sudden it starts kicking, it's just a little before this place, I couldn't find the picture of the actual place, but we're kicking and just weird sounds, and it dies, fortunately, right in front of the Sunflower Bank in Heiko, Texas, and we roll right into a spot there. Smoke billowing out of the front of the end. I don't want it to do, right? So I'm like, okay, hey, is there like a mechanic around? Yes, he's right across the street. Great. So I walk across the street, talk to this guy, stuff all over. So he said, well, I can't do anything now, but call Bill. He didn't even give me an area code, by the way. He's spitting out a number. I'm like, I don't have an area code for Heiko, Texas. He helped me. Apparently everybody knows Bill, by the way. So Bill comes from down the road or sends somebody from down the road. They look at it, turn it over in two seconds. He looks at me, he says, the compression is all gone. Your engine is shot. You need a new engine. So all of a sudden, we're sitting, again, did I tell you, we're in Heiko, Texas. Like, I got to get to, uh, you know, Lubbock. I, I'm not going to be able to speak, so we tried to do that quickly. We got to rent a car, but we're in Heiko, Texas. Like, they don't have a rental car company in Heiko. It's in Stephenville, 30 minutes away. 
I'm like, okay, an Uber. We're in. I go take it. They ain't got an Uber, and I go take So, like, I don't know what to do. So I'm thinking, I'm a doer. Like, I'm a walker and pacer. Like, Melanie's sitting there thinking they're bringing us coffee from the bank. And I'm like, hey, Siri, where's the closest church of Christ? 0.6 miles. Okay. So I walk over to the Heiko Church of Christ on a Wednesday. Nobody there. And I'm like, okay, what are we going to do? I remember this moment. I literally walk out. Seriously, this was a moment. I'm like, God, I've tried to do 10,000 things. I have no idea what to do. Like, I'm like, okay, so maybe I ought to pray. <laughs> like, what are we going to do here? Walk back into the bank. The only thing we could think of is to pay a taxi, 75 bucks or something, to drive us to Stephenville. The lady who worked in the bank said, this is my father, Neil. He's retired, and he's going to drive you to Stephenville. And he comes in, he just waits patiently for us to get all together. By the way, if you can picture this, we were, had our own car, right? This isn't flying. Our daughter's a musician. I've got a bass. I've got a guitar. I've got an amp. I've got this, this poor guy's like, like moving into his SUV. We're driving down the road. Sweet retired man, big old mustache, gray hair. And I just, just got the sense. I said, you a God-fearing man? He said, yes, I am. We spent that 30 minutes talking about Jesus. Talk about what he did in his retirement, how he loves to be with his wife. He loves to make food now and cook in the backyard. And he's got this big grill. He can now make hash browns. And he describes this great feast. And I said, man, next time I'm coming through, I might call you up. He said, come on, I'll feed you. And he meant it. And of course, you know what happened when we got to the rental car place and I tried to offer him some gas money. You know. Oh, no, you've done enough. You've paid enough right now. Here's a man who showed me in the midst of just an everyday moment in life. What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus with an abundant mindset? Yeah, I got over an hour to somebody I don't even know and we'll take care of you and we'll bless you. And if you just came through town, we'd feed you too. That's what it looks like in a world where we're fighting and grasping for the air to be someone that says, oh, our Lord fills us up so we can naturally fill up the lives of other people. Last picture he gives because he starts with some negative things but he ends with this beautiful picture and poem in fact it's so strong people often use it in weddings what does he say as he finishes up what's the last picture of what he's wrestling with he wrestles and then gives the antidote for it he's wrestling with what many call the epidemic of isolation and loneliness it is an epidemic in our world of isolation and loneliness listen to what he says in verse 8 just feel it Maybe even takes us back to earlier passages of Scripture. He said, there was a man all alone. And by the way, this is not disconnected from earlier. Why is he all alone? There is no end to his toil, and his eyes are not content. Why is he all alone? He's worked himself into isolation and loneliness. His eyes are never content. In the Jewish and Hebrew uh, imagery, your eyes are a symbol for your desire. And what is he saying when your eyes are not content? You're never satisfied. He always wants what? More. Never has enough. So he's going to keep trying and keep filling up. And the result of that is isolation and loneliness. In fact, this is so connected with where we came from in the last movement. The scarcity mindset leads us to a place of loneliness. A mentor of mine was actually talking about the world's story of scarcity and how different it is from the abundance of God. He said, this is really profound. He said, if you really buy into the world's idea of scarcity, that there's not enough, one of two things or both will happen. Either what you do is you try self-protection or you try self-promotion. Think about that. 
If there's not enough in the world or not enough of me, you will either self-protect or self-promote. Self-protect is we'll just, I got mine and I'm going to hide over here and I'm not going to let you know me very much. I'm just going to take care of me. That's self-protection, right? Self-promotion says, well, I'm going to get better, more, achieve more and more and more. I'll talk about it later. And here's the thing. Either way, we end up alone. We end up alone and disconnected in this world, and it is an epidemic of this world. He draws on the creation story. There was a man who was all alone. What does that sound like? We said before when we were going into wisdom literature, they don't quote a lot of the Bible, but they'll reflect on creation a lot. This part of the story takes us all the way back to creation. Do you remember this? God creates the world, and it's a beautiful poem and song that God sings. There's the chorus that comes again and again like this. God created something, and it was good. God created, it was good. It was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. God created it all, saw it all, and it was very good. Do you know the first thing that God looked at in the world and said, it is not good? Do you know what it is? Before the fall, first thing, it is not good for human beings to be alone. Before it even finished creation. We are wired and created for community. And he sings the song about it here so much that people will use it in weddings. Although he's not just talking about a marriage relationship. By the way, every time I say this, I'm, I, I want to be very clear. Uh, the fact that we're created for community does not mean you have to be married. And it does not mean you have to be an extrovert. It's really important. In fact, 50.1% of the world are actually introverts. There's more of you than there are of us. You just hear us more. You don't have to be 20,000 friends or whatever the case may be. You don't have to be married, but we do have to have someone in our life that know us well and know our strengths and our weaknesses and walk with us on the metaphor of this whole passage is a journey. Look at verses 9 through 12. It's a journey. Two are walking. One falls. You can pick them up. Two are laying down at night and sleeping. You can keep warm. It's not about marriage even. It's just about getting around the fire or whatever. And, and you can accomplish more. All of that. You can do this together in partnership on the journey of life. We do this together. And so often churches have missed this because we privatize our faith. It's me and Jesus under a tree. No, we are created for community. And I love that we have a baptism on this Sunday. Because we forget, we make baptism about our little ticket to go to heaven. That's beautiful. But what Nate and Daniel reminded us of today, in 1 Corinthians 12, it says, we are baptized by the Spirit into one body. You now belong to us. And sorry you got crazy uncles like me. We belong to you. You're part of a body. You matter here. We live and thrive in community. By the way, that promise of the power of God's community is very personal to me. This isn't just a kind of throwaway thing. Because remember I told you about my friend who did the core lies of our lives? One of my core lies, I've told you others, one of my, my central lie of my life is this is what I hear, you will be abandoned. Part of his dad dying at an early age, but it's other things too, you will be abandoned. I know in a room like this, I'm not the only one that hears that lie. In fact, often in churches, another way of saying that version of the lie is people will think this, if they really knew what I've done, what I think, and who I am, they would leave. That's a lie. Listen, it's a lie from the pit of hell, but I guarantee a lot of you believe it. If they really knew who I am, they would leave. Here's what I found in Jesus Christ. Yeah, there's a few flaky people that might, but here's what I found in Christ. The more people know me, and some of them are right here, the more people know me, the closer we get in Jesus Christ. That's the truth. 
In fact, if you're like me, I literally have to combat the lie with the word of God's truth. So here's my mashup I'll give you with, and we'll do a story and we'll be done. Put this up if you would. One from the Old Testament, one from the New. Here's the promise of God. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified. For the Lord your God goes with you. Here's the line I say sometimes every day. He will never leave you or forsake you. I don't care what you've done, where you've been, how bad you are. He will never leave you or forsake you in Christ. Or Jesus' last words in the book of Matthew. He said, surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. God will never leave you alone. And it is the calling of the people of God, first of all, to receive that gift from the God of abundance. Then to be people that manifest that promise into the lives of other people. You know, I always have to see it. To know it deeply. And that's what God gives us in the body of Christ. So let me end with telling you one of my favorite people who models the heart of God in a real and broken world. We, we met her, you know, AFC will do these trips and they'll go to different churches. One of the trips we would do every month, if you would, wanted to go to it and sign up for it, we would go to a place called Heritage Hall. This is a picture of it now. Didn't look this pretty when we were there. It was a senior living center there in town where our college was. Once a month we would go out there and we'd do a little quick service. There'd be a little talk of scripture and there would be some songs. And then we would spend the time just talking with the people there. And I've shared with four, one of the guys that we met there was a guy named Ed Robinson. But I want to talk about Elise. Elise Robinson, the lady we met there. She didn't live there, but her husband did. So every morning, Elise would get up in the morning, go out to Heritage Hall, spend the day with her husband and go to bed at night. And I can't tell you how full of life and love that this woman is, and she'd been doing it for years. She'd been married for a little over 10, 15 years to her husband, and then in early 30s, Ed contracted MS. And that hits different people in different ways, sometimes very mild systems, his was not. He was paralyzed completely from his neck down and had other functions he couldn't do. So from very early on in his 30s, he had to be in complete assisted living full-time. So his wife would live at home, and she would go and spend the days with him. And I remember one time we would just visit him at Heritage Hall. And then one time some of us got the idea, we just want to go out to her house and bless her there. But we also want to ask her. When you're around a person of wisdom, ask him. And so we came to Elise and said, Elise, you are so full of life and joy. And you model the presence of God to your husband. Can you tell us how you do that? Like what gets you through? And she said, here's how I do it. I pray. I pray to God. I'm real. Like I tell him exactly what I think. I tell him what I need, what I want, what I think I need. And she said, then when I give it to him, I have peace. She said, either God will give me the things I've asked for and what I think I need, or he won't. But I trust that God knows. And the part that I will never forget, she said, when I pray, I have peace because it is all now in God's hands. I think that's the perspective the teacher is longing us to get. Is he pursuing joy in a real world? Have the heart of an Elise Robinson, who, by the way, her name, I'm sure she's already gone on with Jesus, but her name lives on because our daughter is named Christine Elise Barham. And I don't know about you, but I want to be a person who models the pursuit of God's joy in the deepest possible ways, receiving the goodness of God, and then manifesting the presence of God in the lives of other people. Father, that's our prayer. You have richly blessed us. You've also given us the courage and the strength and the ability, because of your hope, to look deeply at the pains and the sorrows of this world And we're so grateful that you didn't stand distant. You're not just journaling and reflecting on it, Jesus. You entered into the pain of the world fully. And then you turn it upside down. The hope 
and joy and resurrection and life. Let the people of Jesus Christ here manifest that hope to the rest of the world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Would you please stand as we sing?